The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was born in humble circumstances, the son of a man who took care of horses at a London inn, and he died in near obscurity. We know him today as one of a handful of the greatest poets who ever lived. John Keats gave up his burgeoning career as a physician to pursue what he believed was a higher calling, a devotion to poetry, and somehow he managed in the span of a few short years to write some of the most enduring masterpieces in the English language, even as his death from tuberculosis at the age of 25 eliminated the chance that he would ever share in the wealth or fame or glory that his success might have brought him. We can blame his early death for that, but we may need to credit his early death as well. He was a man who believed he would die young, and perhaps that awareness is what fueled his energy and brought into alignment the intertwining themes, love and death, beauty and death, poetry and death, life and death, that gave his sensuous verses a depth of feeling and understanding that elevated him from the land of mere poetic mortals to the heavenly firmament, where he shines along with Shakespeare and Milton, Homer and Dante, Sappho and Virgil. This is part two of our look at John Keats. Last time I finished breathless and with my heart pounding. I knew we still had a lot to cover. I didn't know if I was up to the task. But here we go. I'm back, baby. And we're going to dive into Jorge Luis Borges on first reading Chapman's Homer, Keats's poem, that is, as well as his poem on reading King Lear and his general passion for Shakespeare, including his famous letter on negative capability. We'll take a harder look at Shelley and Byron and their attitudes toward Keats, the savage reviews Keats received in his lifetime, his trip to Rome, his two great loves, his death, and we will build all of this toward what might be his greatest poem, Ode to a Nightingale. John Keats, Part 2, today on the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Whoa, I am exhausted already. We are on part two of our look at John Keats, and I feel like we could do ten of these. The guy barely lived any amount of time. He was like the Beatles. You know those are my heroes. I knew them long before I knew about Keats. They might be some of the few, the Beatles, who can compete with Keats in terms of age, in terms of realized genius at a young age. Certainly Mozart is up there, Alexander the Great. Shakespeare, as we saw last time, couldn't really compare. Rimbaud, I suppose, although he's not as great. Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, did they reach the creative heights, the output, the sustained excellence? Let's check in on the Beatles. How did they do before the age of 26? Remember, Keats died at 25. John Lennon turned 26 in October of 1966. That takes you through all the albums before Sgt. Pepper. Hard Day's Night, Rubber Soul, Revolver. He's written In My Life and Girl and Hard Day's Night and Help and Norwegian Wood and Nowhere Man 
and tomorrow never knows, and please please me, and you've got to hide your love away, and I feel fine, a ticket to ride, and dozens of others. I think he qualifies. That's Keatsian. Paul was even younger. With him, you get all the way through Sergeant Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour before he turns 26. So you get Yesterday and Penny Lane and Can't Buy Me Love and Hello, Goodbye and All My Loving and the two and that he and John wrote nose to nose. I want to hold your hand and she loves you. Eleanor Rigby and Michelle and Here, There and Everywhere. And I saw her standing there at Paperback Writer and Magical Mystery Tour and Drive My Car in his half of a day in the life. And my favorite song, maybe, of all time, for no one. I think he qualifies, too. But it's a very short list. People with prodigious creative output, sustained artistic excellence, outpourings of genius, still readable or listenable after a long period of time. For poetry, Keats is hard to beat. He had to know this, even as he wasn't recognized by the world. He had to know how young he was, how good he was, good and getting better. And he was ambitious, not so much because of his ego, or not just because of his ego, but because of his love for poetry, his love for it, and his belief in its importance. Had to know what he could do, what he was capable of, what he could aspire to write. But he was on a race against time. Everyone around him was dying, as we discussed last time, and he, a physician, was aware that he was dying too. He coughed up blood and said, I recognize that color. It's my death warrant. So he went big. He admired and appreciated the works of fellow poets like Lee Hunt. And he had the example of the early romantics, especially Wordsworth and Coleridge. Although these later romantics were somewhat disillusioned by them at this point, they were old men, Wordsworth and Coleridge, in their 40s. Wordsworth, the young revolutionary, had applied for a posting with the government and was working as a tax collector, of all things. Coleridge was addicted to opium and had begun espousing conservative political views. But I think Keats actually had more poetic objections to them as his own views of poetry began to evolve, and that takes us right into his hero, Shakespeare. It is Keats's famous concept of negative capability. Keats owned about a hundred books, mostly poetry. He had several books of contemporary poems by Lee Hunt, Wordsworth, Shelley, and so on. He had works by Hazlitt and Oliver Goldsmith, a few biographies, the Book of Common Prayer, the Bible, and classic poetry like Dante, Milton, Chaucer, Spencer. But toward the end of his life, he gave some of these away, mostly to Fanny Braun, one of his loves. We'll have more on this soon. We're going to give you both his loves this episode. He kept the rest of his books in a chest, which he noted in his will, divide the books among my friends. He kept with him on his fateful journey only two books, Shakespeare's Poetical Works and a pocket-sized volume called The Dramatic Works of William Shakespeare, which had excerpts along with some commentary. He wrote his name on the first page of this one, John Keats, in case it was lost. The annotations are extraordinary. My hero takes a beating in one of them. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, there's a quote by Dr. Johnson, who said, this is in the printed version, quote, Wild and fantastical as this play is, all the parts in their various modes are well written, and give the kind of pleasure which the author designed. 
Fairies in his time were much in fashion. Common tradition had made them familiar, and Spencer's poem had made them great. End quote. And then the quotation was attributed to Dr. Johnson. Keats scribbled all this out. <laughs> didn't like the paragraph, didn't like the commentary. He left the name Johnson, but he wrote a new word in front of it. Phi. F-I-E. No, no, he's arguing back. You're wrong about the fairies. Fie, Johnson. It's a reminder that Keats has such a, an ill-deserved reputation as a shrieking violet, a coughing flower. He wasn't tender, ephemeral, gentle, effete. He was known for being irascible, especially when he got to school. He argued with people. He was cranky. And then, of course, he was a surgeon's assistant, holding down men being operated on with no aesthetic cutting into them himself, hacking limbs. He was a cockney, a fighter, a survivor. He wasn't born in some library or on some grand estate, dressed up in finery and dreaming of poetry. It was more of a battle for him, life, a battle. Back to Shakespeare. Also in the annotations, on the same page that he scribbled out Johnson's commentary, Keats copied out verses that he liked. That's what's so great about seeing him read Shakespeare. For most of the annotations, you can see Keats's appreciative, poetic mind at work. He underlines phrases he likes. Sometimes the underlining runs the whole way across the page, line by line by line, but they're not solid lines. It's as if he's saying, oh yes, this is a good three or four words, and so is this, and so is this, and so is this. As the miraculous Shakespearean imagery and diction pile up on one another. Even some of the prose passages get underlining, reminding us that here, too, Shakespeare filled his workmanlike characters with vivid and inspired words. The stuff of poetry. As they smelt music, so I charmed their ears. Underline, underline, by Keats. So his mind cankers. Underline. Hoodwink this mischance. Underline. It's not just the to be or not to be that you see underlined. It's the language used in every situation, the language grabbed from the air by Shakespeare, like Prometheus grabbing fire from the sun. It's a beautiful thing, reading The Tempest, with John Keats and his pen alongside you. Every time you see an underlining, you think, there's a phrase that surprised Keats, or impressed him, or rang true. All those little phrases adding up, like data entered into a computer, making him more intelligent, more capable, more aware of what a poet can do, giving him the keys to words whose power he himself could unlock. It's like watching a master teach a novice when we know the novice will soon rise to great heights. And we have Keats's words about Shakespeare too, most famously in his letters, where he uses Shakespeare to set out a kind of poetic credo and gives us the phrase negative capability. What is negative capability? For Keats, it's the way the artist gets at truth. It's truth without logic or science. It's truth arrived at through unconventional means. A great thinker, says Keats, like Shakespeare, especially Shakespeare, is, quote, capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason, end quote. Capable of being, of living within those doubts. Isn't that like life itself? That's what he's getting at, I think. 
And that's where beauty comes in and truth, too. We're back with the Grecian urn, which we looked at in the last episode on Keats. What does the last line mean? That's what everyone argues about. It means X. No, it means Y. Keats is saying it means both. It means neither. Maybe it doesn't mean anything at all. Maybe the trembling difference between meanings is what gives it poetic power. We can't ask the poet to decide for us. Poets aren't teaching us like a schoolmaster setting down lessons. They're creating art, wild, beautiful art. And that means the beauty might arrive in an ambiguity, in a surprising shock, in a burst of inspiration. That's more important than a quest for objective fact. A poet can and must bury self-consciousness and dwell in a state of openness to all experience. Here's the full passage. His letters really are extraordinary. Keats's, a great treasure trove of deep thinking about life and poetry. Highly recommended. Keats says, quote, Several things dovetailed in my mind, and at once it struck me. What quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, in which Shakespeare possessed so enormously, I mean negative capability. That is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Coleridge, for instance, would let go by a fine, isolated verisimilitude caught from the penetralium of mystery, from being incapable of remaining content with half-knowledge. This, pursued through volumes, would perhaps take us no further than this, that with a great poet, the sense of beauty overcomes every other consideration, or rather, obliterates all consideration. End quote. There we have it. Coleridge would have beauty right in his grasp, and he'd let it go. He'd let it escape, because he couldn't pin it down. It was only half-knowledge, in his view. He couldn't understand the rest. He'd overthink it. He'd try to diagnose it. He couldn't see that the beauty lay in the mystery, not the knowledge, the incomprehension, not the full and complete understanding. Throughout Keats's letters, you can see him reaching beyond Wordsworth and Hunt and his other contemporaries, reaching for poetry at its highest power. Why should we be owls, he says, when we can be eagles? Why should we be Wordsworth and Hunt when we can be Shakespeare? That's his project. So naturally, he writes sonnets. He copies Shakespeare's forms, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much. Themes and imagery are also in a kind of conversation with Shakespeare. He mirrors Shakespeare's poems. He advances some ideas. He's clearly inspired by him. Shakespeare was a great muse. We can see this in a poem like Bright Star. Here's Keats in love with Fanny Braun. And Keats in love is like the most intense boyfriend you've ever had or heard of. He writes, <laughs> he writes Fanny Braun letters that say things like, I have two luxuries to brood over in my walks, your loveliness and the hour of my death. Oh, that I could have possession of them both in the same minute. <laughs> Let me read that again. I have two luxuries. Luxuries, he says. I have two luxuries to brood over in my walks, your loveliness and the hour of my death. 
Oh, that I could have possession of them both in the same minute. Imagine being Fanny, receiving a letter like this. Two luxuries, she reads. Ooh, my man is thinking about something very fine. Kind of a mystery here. What are these luxuries? Oh, my loveliness. Ooh, dear John, what a beautiful idea. My loveliness is like a luxury to you. And what is the other luxury? The hour of your death? <laughs> and you want to have both of them in the same minute? Ugh. So typical, John. So typical. This is like Romeo and Juliet type stuff. And let's keep in mind that this is young love. This is teenager stuff, early 20s. And Keats was right to feel as doomed as he did. It wasn't affected. It was real. Death surrounded him, and he himself had the disease that would kill him, and he knew it. So let's take a look at the poem, John's Shakespearean poem to Fanny. It's a sonnet, of course. Bright star. Bright star, would I were steadfast as thou art, not in tone splendor hung aloft the night, and watching with eternal lids apart, like nature's patient, sleepless eremite, the moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores, or gazing on the new soft-fallen mask of snow upon the mountains and the moors. No, yet still steadfast, still unchangeable, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast, to feel forever its soft fall and swell, awake forever in a sweet unrest. Still, still to hear her tender-taken breath, and so live ever, or else swoon to death. While that's still ringing in our ears, let's hear some of Shakespeare's Sonnet 116. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Back to Bright Star, we see Keats carrying out his dream, his two luxuries, the hour of his death and the loveliness of his love contemplated together. There is a sexy reading of this poem, pillowed upon my fair love's ripening breast, to feel forever its soft fall and swell, still, still to hear her tender-taken breath. This is sex, isn't it? Isn't this a lover commingling with his love? This is how he wants to live ever or forever, or else swoon to death. What is a swoon to death? Is that an actual death? Or is that an orgasm? Orgasms are often called tiny deaths in multiple languages and across multiple cultures. I think it might be that, but I think it's also Keats's second luxury here, death itself. You have love, you have beauty that makes you burst, you have a heightened sense of life, and you have death. And the two combined and intermingled are what makes the human condition so wonderful and so terrifying all at once, with very few ways to tap into this dichotomy. Sex might be one of them. Poetry is another. But let's look at the resonance with Shakespeare. Love for Shakespeare is an ever-fixed mark, the star to every wandering bark that looks on tempests 
and is never shaken. You can imagine Keats reading this, loving this. Love is like a star, not just hot and fiery, not just high, but fixed, an ever-fixed mark that looks back at the world, looks back with a steady gaze. Down here, there might be wars, there might be passions. Here, there might be great seismic upheavals. Up there, in the realm of the stars, it's placid, it's gentle, it's cosmic, it's remote. But it's gazing at us, serenely but intensely, reminding us that we are temporary, and it is not. Time passes. Our time is brief by comparison. Bright star, Keats says, watching with eternal lids apart. It never blinks, this great eye. It watches the earth constantly. And what does it see? The beautiful, beautiful lines of Keats. The moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores. That is so good. My God. I'm just staggered by Keats sometimes. The moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores. We humans stain things. We sin. We ruin. We wreck. And there's the ocean ebbing and flowing, cleansing the beach, cleansing our impact, cleansing us like a priest, cleansing us of sin. Watched by the star that never closes its eyes, just watching earth, watching the silly and insignificant fights and struggles we have, waiting for the passage of time to wash it all away. Wow. Keats wrote many sonnets, and some are worthy. One I like is called When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be, which <laughs> the title of which always kind of cracks me up because it sounds like someone who only occasionally has those fears when it seemed that Keats had thoughts like that with, with him constantly. With every breath he had fears that he may cease to be. It was a luxury for him, not a fear. When I have fears that I may cease to be. Here we go. When I have fears that I may cease to be, before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books in charactery hold like rich garners the full ripened grain, when I behold upon the night's starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance, and when I feel fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love. Then, on the shore of the wide world I stand alone, and think till love and fame to nothingness do sink. It's a good sonnet, an adequate sonnet. It has a poetic theme and carries it out. It does the job. But you can see why Keats turned away from the sonnet and turned toward the ode. He found in the, in the ode a freedom to explore, a freedom to go after the beauty he was chasing. This sonnet, when I have fears that I may cease to be, reminds me of the five-paragraph essays that students learn to write early on. Sure, it helps you figure out how to write. Sure, it's worth knowing how to do, but it's limiting, too. Time to move beyond if you're going to move forward. Keats moved on from the sonnet form, but he never moved on from Shakespeare. Shakespeare was forever his bright star. Let's take a quick break 
We're going to come back with some emails from listeners, some news about our Patreon account, good news for patrons, I hope, and then finish our John Keats story. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first email. Subject. Quick. Baby asleep. (laughs) What a subject line. Quick. Comma, baby asleep, period. I caught my breath. I know what that's like. Tiptoe time, quiet murmuring whispers, or not even. Stillness. The baby is asleep. Just pantomime gestures. I'm guessing that our typist is typing as silently as he can. Email begins, hey Jack. With a little winky face. Hey, Jack. Just wanted to drop a line as long as a long-time lurker and a recent father. Always enjoy your hot takes on the big authors and even bigger books with a particular appreciation for the banter between yourself and Mike. Brings an extra big smile to my face when I hear that the president of the Literature Supporters Club will be with you to intelligently talk through the given topic. Wow. What a nice paragraph. Isn't that beautiful to receive some unqualified praise? It's a rare thing indeed in this life. It lifts the spirit and warms the heart. Except for one thing. One asterisk here. I edited that last sentence. I removed a parenthetical. I just removed one word. But let me read it again as as our, as our emailer originally wrote it. Brings an extra big smile to my face when I hear that the president of the Literature Supporters Club will be with you to intelligently, mostly, talk through the given topic. Mostly? (laughs) Mostly. What a dagger. What a little shiv right there in that quiet little spot between those unassuming little parentheses. Is that aimed at me, Brutus? Or is that at Mike, the emperor himself, the great dictator who seized all power? Comes on to discuss literature intelligently, mostly, 
<laughs> I guess our emailer Joshua won't be supporting Mike's re-election campaign. Not that it matters, since the election is a fraud. Russia has tampered with the voting down there at the Literature Supporters Club. And Mike is now president for life. Back to the email. The catalyst for writing this email is to send through some thanks, not just for the tireless scholarly work brought to us on literature, but for the anecdotes, stories, and encouragement that both yourself and Mike, maybe unwittingly, provide on the topic of parenthood. As individuals further down the line, I am thankful for the advice I have gleaned and will use on my own journey as a father. As I am sure you have all six of Nausgaard's novels to read over and over again, I will keep this email short and come to a close. Keep this old podcast chugging in the knowledge that all over the globe we are supporting you and literature. Kind regards, 26-year-old Melbourne, Australia resident with a one-month-old bub, Josh. Oh, Josh. Oh, my, 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 my. A one-month-old bub living there in Australia. How well I remember those days with my own one-month-olds sleeping away. The sweetest thing in the world. They are so soft and gentle at that age, and the sleep so peaceful. I could lie on my back for hours, a baby on my chest back then, and sometimes in my arms while I held a book. I finished the Patrick O'Brien books with my second son warmly in my care. Captain Jack Aubrey was fighting the battles, while Captain Jack Wilson was warmly in his Manhattan apartment, sitting on a rocking chair, a slumbering babe in the crook of his arm. Best wishes to you, and yes, parenthood is a wonderful, wonderful thing. We will keep the old podcast chugging. And for all you emailers out there, whenever you say something nice about Mike, and if you throw in a little parenthetical here and there, well... Well, I will not disapprove. Mike's a vast and beautiful mountain. He can take a pebble or two hurled at his sides. And I know he will take it. Take your insults with grace and good humor. Mostly. Next up, we also heard back from our Brazilian friend, Claudia. Subject, Brazilian friend. I just love, that's my favorite subject line. Brazilian friend. Here I am, Jack. Brazilian friend, I exist. I declare that I am your friend. We've never met, but I declare it. Maybe the second best declaration in all of literature. The first best, of course, is Oscar Wilde when he went through customs in America. And they said, do you have anything to declare, Mr. Wilde? And he said, the only thing I have to declare is my genius. Back to the email. Dear Jack, what a moment you gave me. Thank you so much for your kind and unexpected response. Your words were sweet and thoughtful. Literature indeed brings people together. It is, funny enough, like we have a common nationality. We share a history, heroes, places, symbols, and, of course, a very special language. To hear my letter read out loud during a talk about Nausgaard was a special treat. I wanted to travel through my phone to help your guest... Is that his real name? And also to defend Proust at a certain point. I am Team Nausgaard. For his generation, which is mine, as much as Team Ferrante, who wrote the best book about women's friendship. Both of them speak to our time and feelings. And that 
doesn't hurt Proust in any way. On the contrary. All the best for you and your amazing history of literature. Com carino, Claudia. Claudia, my Brazilian friend, I could not agree more. Proust is undisturbed by Nosgaard or by Ferrante. The three of them live happily together like stars in the sky, millions of miles apart, yet also as close as my thumb is to my finger. It's all a matter of perspective. I'm Team Lim... Let's try that again. I'm Team Literature, to be sure, as are you and all my listeners. Speaking of which, we have a new announcement. Our Patreon account is getting a boost. We are going to have some bonus content for our patrons. We will roll it out in March. So if you are a patron in March, you will get a link to some special new content just for you. I think... It's going to be some original Jack Wilson fiction. So for those of you who've been inquiring about that, inquire no more. Just sign up at patreon.com slash literature and have your curiosity sated and your thirst for more Jack Wilson slaked. We're doing this out of appreciation for our patrons who sign up for a small monthly contribution to help us keep things rolling here at the History of Literature podcast. Speaking of which, we want to issue a special thank you to new patrons David, George, Drew, Kristen, and Brian. Many thanks to you and all the visitors to patreon.com slash literature. Let's take a quick break and come back with some more John Keats goodness. One of the great pleasures of Keats comes from reading him. That sounds simple, but it's not always true of great authors and poets. Sometimes it's not a pleasure. Sometimes it's hard work. And with Keats, it's sometimes difficult, but the pleasures of feeling his imagery wash over you are there. And Keats himself was a great reader, of course, one who was in a conversation with many great men and women of the past. He wrote poems about reading, about reading King Lear, and about reading Chapman's Homer. Chapman was an Elizabethan who translated Homer. But let's jump ahead a century and a half to another great reader, Borges, the librarian and book lover, who himself was a truly great author, a genius, a blind man who loved literature as very few people ever have. But first, let's set the table by hearing Keats's poem on first looking into Chapman's Homer. Much have I traveled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been, which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told, that deep-browed Homer ruled as his demean. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken. Or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Beautiful. Literature is like the opening up of new worlds, the shock the surprise, 
the astonishment, the breathtakingly new. A whole new vista. A whole new world. The translation of Homer by Chapman brought that to Keats. A new planet swam into this skywatcher's eyes. Here's Borges talking about the poem. He says, quote, I am reminded now of a poem you all know by heart. This was in a lecture by Borges. But you will never have noticed, perhaps, how strange it is. For perfect things in poetry do not seem strange. They seem inevitable. And so we hardly thank the writer for his pains. I am thinking of a sonnet written more than a hundred years ago by a young man in London. In Hampstead, I think. A young man who died of lung disease. John Keats. And of his famous and perhaps hackneyed sonnet on first looking into Chapman's Homer. What is strange about that poem, and I thought of this only three or four days ago when I was pondering this lecture, is the fact that it is a poem written about the poetic experience itself. You know it by heart, yet I would like you to hear once more the surge and thunder of its final lines. Then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez when, with eagle eyes, he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Here we have the poetic experience itself. We have George Chapman, the friend and rival of Shakespeare, being dead and suddenly coming to life when John Keats read his Iliad or his Odyssey. I think it was of George Chapman, but I cannot be sure, as I am not a Shakespearean scholar, that Shakespeare was thinking when he wrote, quote, Was it the proud full sail of his great verse, bound for the prize of all too precious you? End quote. There is a word that seems to me very important on first looking into Chapman's Homer. This first may, I think, prove most helpful to us. At the very moment I was going over these those mighty lines of Keats. I was thinking that perhaps I was only being loyal to my memory. Perhaps the real thrill I got out of the verses by Keats lay in that distant moment of my childhood in Buenos Aires when I first heard my father reading them aloud, and when the fact that poetry, language, was not only a medium for communication, but could also be a passion and a joy when this was revealed to me. I do not think I understood the words, but I felt that something was happening to me. It was happening not to my mere intelligence, but to my whole being, to my flesh and blood. Going back to the words, on first looking into Chapman's Homer, I wonder if John Keats felt that thrill, after he had gone through the many books of the Iliad and the Odyssey. I think the first reading of a poem is a true one, and after that we delude ourselves into the belief that the sensation, the impression, is repeated. But, as I say, it may be pure loyalty, a mere trick of the memory, a mere confusion between our passion and the passion we once felt. Thus, it might be said that poetry is a new experience every time. Every time I read a poem, the experience happens to occur. And that is poetry. End quote. Is Borges right? I'd like to think so. We read for the first time, and we can never recreate that moment. It's the best reading imaginable, the freshest. 
And yet, the next time we read, we have not only the poem, but the memory of that first reading. And that's different. That sticks with us, too. Maybe the best reading imaginable is now better. Maybe it's richer. Maybe it's deeper. This is beautiful. It's like George Carlin's joke. People don't realize that when you're older, you're all the ages at once. When I'm 70, I'm not just 70. I'm also 56 and 43 and 21 and 16 and 5. And then he says, especially 5. That's the joke. That's the punchline. Especially 5. But the sentiment is there. You can call forth all those past ages when you're older. They're all still part of you. It's like when you travel to a city, Paris, let's say, and you, you go see the Eiffel Tower and the Mona Lisa, and you eat baguettes and hang out with your friends and maybe fall in love. And the next time you go, you don't do any of those things. You visit different museums and you skip the Eiffel Tower. Maybe you go to the bookstores. And maybe you're there with someone else. And the third time, it's a little different. But you still remember that very first time. And the second time, too. You have those memories with you, those experiences. And so you can turn the corner and suddenly feel that same feeling of being in love. And now you're not just in love, but you're remembering what it's like to be in love. And there's a difference. The first falling in love and the second falling in love. And maybe we're just talking about falling in love with the city itself as Keats was talking about falling in love with Chapman's Homer. You open the pages once, fall in for the first time, and Borges says, yes, true, true, but then the second reading is just as good in a different way, and that experience is worth chasing as well. Chasing, embracing, and letting it influence you. Feeling it, body and soul. The literary critic Wayne Booth used to tell a story about reading Anna Karenina at age 20 and age 40 and age 60. At 20, he thought, oh no, what is Anna doing with this old man? Young, beautiful Anna, why is she tying herself to this old fuddy-duddy? What a waste. At 40, he looked at the relationship differently. He thought, how nice, he will teach her. At 60, he read it and thought, what the hell are these people doing? <laughs> I read Keats. I read Keats when I was 19 and 20, and he was hugely influential to me. I talked about this on the Bad Poetry episode, number 62, I think. Keats turned me into a bad poet, inspired me to the world's detriment. Literature was lucky to survive my assault on it. But I loved Keats. I even kind of loved the 20-year-old who loved Keats. That was a passionate little fellow making his way in the world. Young Jack Wilson, eager and optimistic, wearing an Italian army coat he bought in a thrift store, banging around Europe, trying to figure out life, thinking he found some secrets in Keats. I like that guy. Hugely embarrassing, but hey, I'm big enough to contain a little embarrassment. What's being young for if not to take chances? And now I have the same book I had, the same book of Keats's poems. I had his letters, too, which are somewhere in my house. I have it somewhere. This book of poems, though, is like an old friend I haven't visited in years. It's white with an orange urn on the cover, a Grecian urn, of course. And I could close my eyes and know that I was holding the book. It has the perfect heft. There's a word for the way food feels in your mouth, the saltiness, 
the taste, the texture, the weight of the food. Scientists have studied it and measured this phenomenon. The way certain foods will hit certain triggers in your mind. Chicken might be different to your teeth and tongue than, say, soup or a taco or a piece of celery. I've heard that they can measure this to determine which food is the best, the most pleasing, the most indescribably but perfectly suited for our palate, and that of all the great foods, birthday cake and steak and a crisp apple, nothing has ever scored as high as a Dorito. Doritos are diabolically well-suited to the human palate. You could give a bag of Doritos to a caveman, and he'd follow you around like a junkie, holding out his bicep and begging for the needle. Where was I? Yes, the book of Keats. This book of mine, which feels so good in my hand, it's the Doritos of literature, to me at least. It's small enough to hold easily, but dense enough to feel important and worthy. I bought it used in a Blackwell's in London. The sticker says £2.70 written in pencil. I can remember, thanks to the sticker, how I bought the book in London and took it back with me to Italy, where I took it to Rome, where I visited the Spanish steppes, where Keats himself lived and died, and which is now the Keats Shelley House. I took this book with me through Rome, reading Keats, tracing his steps. I took this book to his grave. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. That's Keats's request for his epitaph on his gravestone. That quote floored me at the time as a 20-year-old. He didn't know. He didn't know his name was not written water. It was carved in marble. He never knew success in his lifetime. And I can open the book and the success comes flooding out. The book itself brings back memories, but the lines are even more vivid. The richness of the poetry I leaf through, finding old favorites, and reading them again, I am struck by their beauty, as I recall how they struck me years before. I am overwhelmed. And then I read a line like the one in the eve of St. Agnes, the hare limped trembling through the frozen grass. And remember how important that line was to Fitzgerald, and by transmutation it became important to me too. Fitzgerald loved how that line worked. He thought it was beautiful. He thought it was the key to understanding literature and the English language. Look at the verb there, limped, and how the action is rendered through the adverbs and adjectives, trembling and frozen. The hare limped trembling through the frozen grass. You can see it, almost feel it. Imagine a prose version you might say, it was cold, so cold the grass was frozen. Trembling, a hare hopped through the grass with a limp. Now listen to all this condensed into Keats's poetry. The hare limped trembling through the frozen grass. Sometimes it's the condensation that takes our breath away. Sometimes it's the freshness of the idea. Sometimes it's the majestic beauty. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. The moving waters at their priest-like task of pure ablution round earth's human shores. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. A thing of beauty 
is a joy forever. You find lines like this all through Keats's greatest poems. I found them when I was in Rome, reading this book, visiting the grave, trying to find some kind of higher meaning in life. Keats came to Rome with that other luxury on his mind, the hour of his own death. His doctor recommended the journey. It was September. Keats was suffering from tuberculosis, or consumption, as it was called then. It was not well understood. But warm air and sunshine were recommended treatments, so the doctor told Keats to get to Italy. Nowadays, he'd jump on a plane and be there in two hours, maybe an overnight train. Back then, he boarded a ship. They were hit with some bad luck, winds that died, leaving them adrift, and it took two months before he finally arrived in Naples, only to be held in quarantine for another ten days, stuck on board the ship, unable to leave. By the time he finally got to Rome, it was November, and the possibility for sunshine and warm air and a pleasant, rejuvenating recovery had been lost. He was suffering now deeply suffering from his illness. He was begging for opium to kill the pain, and his companion realized later that Keats may have been hoping to get enough opium to end his own life. The companion, Joseph Severn, gives us a harrowing account of Keats's death. He was coughing up blood and covered in sweat. He would sometimes cry upon waking to find himself still alive. How long is this posthumous existence of mine to go on? He would say. How horrible is that? Here's what Severn wrote about the final hours. Keats raves till I am in a complete tremble for him. About four, the approaches of death came on. Keats said, Severn, I lift me up. I am dying. I shall die easy. Don't be frightened. Be firm, and thank God it has come. I lifted him up in my arms. The phlegm seemed boiling in his throat, and increased until eleven, when he gradually sank into death, so quiet that I still thought he slept. We haven't talked about Keats's loves yet. He had two. When he was around twenty-two, he met Isabella Jones in the village of Bo-Peep of all places. The two of them had some kind of tryst. Keats says in letters that he kissed her and frequented her rooms and warmed with her. Hmm? This might have been his first sexual encounter. She was described by others as beautiful, talented, and widely read. She was good for his poetry. She inspired him, but also gave him ideas for things to write about. They were good friends. They were close. When he died, she was one of the first in England to be notified. But Fanny Braun replaced her in Keats's heart, it seems. He met her about a year and a half after he met Isabella Jones. She was 18, he was 23. He was nursing his brother at the time, Tom, through his illness. By luck, Fanny and her mother moved into a nearby home. And Fanny, her real name was Frances, but like Keats's mother and sister who also had that name. She went by Fanny. John and Fanny were able to see each other every day. He gave her the sonnet Bright Star as a declaration of love, although he had written forms of it before, including one that he had probably written for Isabella Jones. 
but he revised it and gave it to Fanny as a declaration of love. They were in love, these two, a doomed love, because both because of his own impending death, but also because of their financial situation. Keats was a poet now, committed to poetry. He had given up his prospects as a physician and had no real other source of income. That lawyer had cut off his inherited money. We talked about that last time. And after giving up his profession and the other debts he had incurred, Keats couldn't marry Fanny, and he knew it. He gave that up for poetry. And yet, they had a kind of understanding, not a formal engagement, but a kind of commitment to one another. He wrote to her, quote, My love has made me selfish. I cannot exist without you. I am forgetful of everything but seeing you again. My life seems to stop there. I see no further. You have absorbed me. I have a sensation at the present moment as though I was dissolving. I should be exquisitely miserable without the hope of soon seeing you. I have been astonished that men could die martyrs for religion. I have shuddered at it. I shudder no more. I could be martyred for my religion. Love is my religion. I could die for that. I could die for you. End quote. He used to say that his love would kill him if he wasn't already dying, that the love he felt for Fanny would overpower him, would crush him, would be too much joy to experience. Only the awareness that his death would tragically cut short his love made it possible for him to endure that love. That's a complicated way to look at the world, but no one with a death warrant ever said life would be simple. Shelley wrote a beautiful poem celebrating Keats after his death. We talked last time about Keats and the way he overcame his lowly origins. Shelley seems to have handled this better. He loved Keats, loved his poetry, believed in him. Byron was kind of a snob about it all. It tells us more about Shelley and Byron than it does about Keats. Shelley was generous and unpretentious. It was as if he were so invested in viewing poets and poetry as a replacement for religion, he couldn't turn down the chance to view Keats through those eyes. Here was a great champion, an undeniably gifted poet, who wrote with a magic pen. If you believed in the power of poetry, you were glad to have the example of Keats. And his early death made this all the more resonant. A martyr for poetry, Shelley said. He had Keats had received some savage reviews in his time. Shelley suggested that they had killed him. As if the world couldn't handle a genius, wasn't worthy of a Keats, and lashed out at him and killed his spirit. He, Keats, was too good for them all. What was this review? John Wilson Croker was one of them. Of Keats's poem Endymion, he wrote, This author is a copyist of Mr. Hunt but he is more unintelligible, almost as rugged, twice as diffuse, and ten times more tiresome and absurd than his prototype, who, though he impudently presumed to seat himself in the chair of criticism and to measure his own poetry by his own standard, yet generally had a meaning. But Mr. Keats had advanced no dogmas which he was bound to support by examples. His nonsense, therefore, is quite gratuitous. He writes it for its own sake, and being bitten by Mr. Lee Hunt's insane criticism, more than rivals the insanity 
of his poetry. End quote. Shelley came to Keats's defense in his preface to Adonais. Quote, the genius of the lamented person to whose memory I have dedicated these unworthy verses was not less delicate and fragile than it was beautiful. And where canker worms abound, what wonder if it's a young flower was blighted in the bud? The savage criticism on his Endymion, which appeared in the Quarterly Review, produced the most violent effect on his susceptible mind. The agitation thus originated ended in the rupture of a blood vessel in the lungs. A rapid consumption ensued, and the succeeding acknowledgments from more candid critics of the true greatness of his powers were ineffectual to heal the wound thus wantonly inflicted. End quote. Byron was skeptical. Byron thought this was a bit of nonsense. He was always a little suspicious of Keats. I don't want to armchair psychologize Byron, but hang on, I guess I sort of do. Remember how I said Keats grew up poor but wanted to jump over the middle class and wealthy and found poetry as his way of doing so? This was our breaking away theory. He was headed for the stars, for the heavenly firmament where Shakespeare lived. Truth, beauty, poetry, Shakespeare, better than all the wealth in the world or the celebrity. Byron was kind of on an opposite path. Byron was born wealthy, born into privilege. He wasn't trying to climb over anyone. He was trying to shed the trappings of wealth. He was on a quest for real experience, great swims, great affairs, real-life human contact. He wrote poetry as a kind of diary of celebrity, showing off, getting rich, smiting his enemies, bragging, making people laugh. Keats was Ingmar Bergman, digging into his own despair to make permanent and enduring art. Byron was more of an Alfred Hitchcock or maybe even a Michael Bay, saying, let's make movies, let's get rich, let's make people laugh, let's live like stars here on earth. Keats saw this difference. You speak of Lord Byron and me, he wrote to his brother George. There is this great difference between us. He describes what he sees. I describe what I imagine. Mine is the hardest task. Byron liked 18th-century Augustan poets like Alexander Pope. They were clever, they were snappy, and Byron imported a lot of this wit and energy into his own poetry. Keats was critical of them, including an explicit rejection in his own poem, Sleep and Poetry. Byron scoffed at Keats, a cockney, he called him. Keats, in turn, believed that Byron had had every advantage and his reception as a poet benefited from those advantages. Quote, you see what it is to be six foot tall and a lord. End quote. That's what he said when Byron got a favorable review. Byron was dismissive of the idea, Shelley's proposition that a bad review had killed Keats, but he turned to it again and again. He felt bad, I think. He had a guilty conscience. He would say, I got bad reviews, too, and I didn't burst a blood vessel about it. I drank three bottles of claret and wrote more poetry. Other bragging dismissals. But it was clear that he was affected. And he started praising Keats. Sometimes it was condescending, saying, hey, he was showing some promise. And other times it was more unqualified. But he memorialized his snobbery in Don Juan where he talks about Keats's lack of education, that he had no Greek, and dismisses the idea that Keats was a martyr to poetry or a victim of a bad review. 
Here's the stanza. John Keats, who was killed off by one critique, just as he really promised something great, if not intelligible. Without Greek contrived to talk about the gods of late, much as they might have been supposed to speak. Poor fellow, his was an untoward fate. Tis strange the mind that very fiery particle should let itself be snuffed out by an article. But let's not end there. Let's instead turn to one of Keats's greatest works, his Ode to a Nightingale. Remember we gave the poet Matthew Zapruder, a guest on our show, the choice of one poem to put in a time capsule, or something like that. I thought I would stymie him. I thought he would say, ah, can I take five? That's the usual answer. Can I take Shakespeare's collected works? But he said, oh, that's easy. Keats's Ode to a Nightingale. Why did he say that? I think it's because, well, first of all, it's a gorgeous poem, full of lush language and surprises. Keats's odes are as good as it gets. But also, it's a poem about poetry. Remember these later romantics, Keats, Byron, and Shelley? They had their issues with the early generation of romantics, especially Wordsworth and Coleridge. Coleridge had turned to opium to find poetic inspiration. The dreaminess he sought. Both men were infused with the revolutionary spirit of the age, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. A new day was dawning, a day of the people, an awakened sense of enlightenment and democratic principles. But by the time the younger generation came along, Wordsworth was working as a tax collector. Coleridge was suspected of being insane. But their belief in poetry carried through, even if their poetry and personal lives had come to disappoint. Keats and his crew were looking for change. They felt the spirit of revolution, even as they turned away from politics, to find it in poetry. Shelley came to view poetry as a replacement for God, but we'll save this for the Shelley episode. Instead, we want to have that as a kind of backdrop for Keats's Nightingale. Both Coleridge's fever dream of Kublai Khan and Shelley's views of poetry as a new religion are instructive here. Keats himself besotted with poetry, and love, too, and death, takes us on a journey with Nightingale. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains, one minute past, and leithwards had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou light-winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beechen green and shadows numberless, singest of summer in full-throated ease. Oh, for a draught of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep-delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song and sunburnt mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrine, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim, and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink, and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim. Let's stop here for a moment. Where are we, with our poet imagining, listening, being inspired? My heart aches, he says, drowsy numbness pains my sense. He's in a fever dream, like Coleridge, except it's not actual opium, but some kind of reverie brought about 
by this light-winged dryad to the trees, the nightingale. It makes him look for a beaker full of the warm south with beaded bubbles winking at the brim. How beautiful is that? Beaded bubbles winking at the brim. Just gorgeous. You hear the song of the nightingale. You look for a way to recreate the numbness that it gives you. Maybe you need to find it in drink. Maybe you need to find it in an opiate. Or maybe you can keep listening and enjoy the reverie for what it is the one brought about by the bird. The poem continues. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret here, where men sit and hear each other groan, where palsy shakes a few sad last gray hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow, and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. What's happening now? He's saying, Nightingale, you and your song, you're timeless. You're like the star in the skies. I'm full of turmoil. I'm headed for death. Men here on earth sit and hear each other groan. They're weary, feverish, full of fret. Palsy will shake a few sad last gray hairs. We have leaden-eyed despairs here on earth. Youth grows pale and specter thin, ghostly thin, and dies. Beautiful lines summarizing lost youth and the way we're all cut down. We fight and rage and mess things up, and then we die. That's life. And yet the nightingale sings beautiful singing, timeless singing. We hear the song just as the ancient Greeks would have. It hasn't changed. It's like a river or a mountain or the sun. It's there for us, just as it was for them. The poem continues. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy. Though the dull brain perplexes and retards, Already with thee, tender is the night, And haply the queen moon is on her throne, Clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, Save what from heaven is with the breezes blown Through verdurous glooms and winding mossy ways. I don't get drunk, says Keats, I don't need to get drunk. That's Bacchus, the god of wine, Coleridge had his opium, not Keats. Keats will get there on the wings of poesy. Poetry will take him there. The dull brain perplexes and retards. Remember his view of Shakespeare. Art doesn't need logic, he said. It doesn't need scientific argument. It goes for beauty. And in that it looks to inspiration and imagination, not science. That's for the dull brain side of us. Here we go with the queen moon and the stars. We take our light that's blown to us on breezes from heaven. Keats is in a reverie now, like a drug-like dream, but he's arrived there through poetry. Continues. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild white hawthorn, and the pastoral eglantine, 
fast-fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming muskrose full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer's eaves. And then Keats brings in death, of course, his muse that's never far away. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. What does it mean to be thinking of death and to hear such a thing of beauty as the nightingale's song? What kind of stirring does it awaken in you? To know that the song came before you and will continue after you. That's Keats's project above all. That's what animates him. He continues, Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the selfsame song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when, sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn. The same that oft-times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. In fairy lands forlorn. He repeats the word forlorn to anchor us and to propel us both like a catapult or a slingshot like linked arms of two spinning children. They fling one another around faster and faster and then release their grip. Forlorn is the last word of one stanza and the first word of the next. It's like those those rockets that use the gravitational pull of Earth to launch themselves. Wasn't this the, <laughs> the plot of uh, the Martian? Anyway, that's how I'm reading this poem. Forlorn. Exclamation mark begins the next one. Of per- Here's the last line of the, the stanza I just read. Of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. That ends the line. And then the next line begins, forlorn, with an exclamation mark. I'll read it all together. Of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu. Thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? What's it like back here on earth after you reach the heights of poetry, after you've flown on poetry's wings? Are you awake now back in reality, or was that reality, and you're asleep now? Was it a dream, a vision, or was it real 
And maybe this is the dream, this is the vision. Maybe that, the moment when the poet heard the nightingale and went on the inspired journey, the mental travel with the nightingale's song, was the poet being alive. And this, now that the music is gone, is like a death, or like a brain-dimmed stupor. Maybe it is death, the easeful death that the poet has half-loved. Ah, Keats. We haven't talked much about To Autumn. We haven't talked enough about his letters. We couldn't cover it all. We can save all that for next time. Or for you, dear reader, as you explore this amazing poet for yourself, this comet, this bright star. Shelley called forth all these feelings in his poem, Adonais, an elegy on the death of John Keats. Listen to the echoes of Keats's own bright star in the final melancholy stanza. The breath whose might I have invoked in song descends on me. My spirit's bark is driven, far from the shore, far from the trembling throng, whose sails were never to the tempest given. The massy earth and spherid skies are riven. I am born darkly, fearfully afar, whilst burning through the inmost veil of heaven, the soul of Adonais, like a star, beacons from the abode where the eternal are. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, John Keats, Part 2. We did it, people. I hope you go dive into some Keats. What a great, great poet. My thanks to him and Shelley and all the other poets who make it possible to spend one's days thinking about these powerful and inspirational things. Speaking of powerful and inspirational, I'm empowered and inspired by you, dear listeners, and all the support that you give the podcast. You are my bright stars, staring at me with lids that do not close, and ears too, I suppose, and fingers that go. Type your way over to patreon.com slash literature, where soon you will join the ranks of special bonus content recipients. For the rest of you, we'll be back next week with some history of literature goodness. Free stuff. Until then, please be healthy, please be kind, please be good, please be well. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>